Hi, everyone. Welcome to This Much I Know, the Seed Camp podcast with me, your host, Carlos Espinal, bringing you the inside story from founders, investors, and leading tech voices. Tune in to hear from the people who built businesses and products, scaled globally, failed fantastically, and learned massively. Welcome, everyone, to this new episode of Legal Hour with Tom and Carlos. Super excited to continue down this subject, which is super fascinating. A lot of you guys probably think legals are not fun, but they are. They're absolutely thrilling. And to Tom and I, it's one of the best times to catch up on all the lessons learned over the years. So welcome, Tom. Great to be back on, on Legal Hour. No, excited, <laughs> excited, for, excited for another thrilling discussion. <laughs> Man, I always love it. I always love it. Well, guys, in case you're wondering what we're going to be covering today, we're going to be covering standard docs. Now, the reason why is because there's a lot of documents out there that you guys can use to, uh, to build out your company uh, in different circumstances. But the thing is that this, this word standard is actually a little bit misleading. I think Tom and I, you know, we've, we've, we've had issues in the past where people say, oh, these are just standard. And well, we know that the word standard varies quite a bit, don't we? Absolutely. No, I think that, yeah, whenever, whenever anyone says standard, whenever anyone ever anyone talks about kind of like this is market standard and the reason for it is because it's standard it's you know it's never exactly the the best place to start you want to start with kind of understanding exactly why you need that document understanding why the things which are in there are the way they are so i think that's why it's it's incredibly difficult to have like one format or one kind of like agreement which applies to everyone i think we've at, at seed camp we've like grappled with this a lot over the years in terms of like can we have, you know, one perfect thing for pre-seed company or one perfect thing for a seed stage investment we do? And, and, and it's, it's getting there. And I think the whole market is, is improving a lot with regards to kind of like what, you know, the, the familiarity with, with different documents. But for sure, there's, there's always some, some element of kind of specific tailoring required for, for each and every single deal and each and every single company. So let's, let's explore why the hell this term standard docs came up then, Tom. Like, I think that my, my theory is this. My theory is that it's driven by two forces, right? There's the force of wanting to simplify from lessons learned. There's the lessons learned themselves. And then there's market pressure. So like, if you look at when somebody says, oh, these are standard docs, I would say they're standard docs for now based upon how competitive things are. What are the problems that people are generally trying to solve? And what are the best ways to solve them efficiently? And I would argue that standard docs in 2020 probably look very different than standard docs in 2010. And that's the, that's the misleading thing of it, that this idea of standard is a shifting thing based upon those three external, external variables, which push on standard docs. And, and I think the reason why I'm, I'm accentuating that is because it's good to think about this idea of a standard doc which can apply to convertibles, term sheets, um, anything like that as something that is not static. It's, it's shifting. And so with that in mind, it's always good to take an approach of like, okay, is this still relevant for me? Is this idea of standard still relevant for me today? And so I wanted to start off a little bit with um, an initiative that we kicked off way back when called Seed Summit. So a little bit of history lesson, Seed Summit which you can go to as seedsummit.org, uh, still ongoing, still actively um, available. So if you if, if you want to go now and click through and see what it looks like, you can go do so right now. Seed Summit started off as an initiative to try to bridge 
US-based docs with European uh, investments. They didn't exist. So when Seed Summit started, there was no such thing as like a, a SAFE or a Series C doc, but there was an initiative called Series C documents in the US. And the idea was what, what could we do to bring that level of standard for the time to the UK and Europe as a whole? And so Seed Summit started as an initiative uh, that, you know, we, we, we spearheaded it, but I, I wouldn't say that I can take credit um, or Seed Camp can take credit for it insofar as it was a community effort. So we spoke to a lot of different uh, firms and we spoke to a lot of different law firms. So a lot of investment firms and law firms and said, okay, based upon all the deals that you guys are doing at the moment, what is average? And maybe the best use of the word standard would be average. This is an average term sheet. This is an average deal. This is an average convertible. This is an average. And that was the spirit of how Seed Summit started. It was an average of terms. And it was drafted in a way where you could see where there were trade-offs between one term and another. And that was the birth of Seed Summit. And it lives to this day. And just to give you a sense of what kind of documents, and we're going to cover these documents in in this podcast, um, Seed Summit had term sheets for every jurisdiction that signed up for it. So Germany, Ireland, France. It also had, and now it has ASAs and, and convertibles, but at the time it was just equity term sheets. Um, it also has something very interesting, which we'll talk about in a bit, advisor agreements. It also had founder agreements. And look, going forward, hopefully it'll, it'll have some of the foundations for employee-related compensation and other sort of agreements. So that's just a little bit of, of history around how C-Summit that as an initiative led to the, the creation of standard, but more, more likely an average doc. And so what I wanted to do now for the rest of the, the, the podcast, Tom, is, is going through some of these uh, standard docs and kind of what to factor in, even though a lot of people just talk about them as if they were like a, a fait accompli, like this is it, this is what you should take. All right, so let's, let's start off with um, why term sheets are not truly standard. So we talked a little bit about equity rounds. We talked about convertibles in the past. But if you if you recall, the term sheet that is in um, Seed Summit has a lot of options, including EIS, non-EIS, uh, vesting. Walk us through like what it is that is non-standard and therefore something that somebody should just think about, even though they're relatively standard. Yeah, no, no, absolutely. I think that that's, you know, summarize the, the, the kind of the origin and the reason for Seed Summit and why it's there. And I think, you know, when you, when you open up that document, when you open up something like that term sheet, you know, you'll see five or six pages with lots of square brackets and lots of things which can be deleted or, or kind of removed in, in, in some way from that document to, to put together something which is more tailored and specific to, to the company. So it's almost like the, the way that we put forward these things and open source these documents was in a way that someone can take that and they can make decisions based on their specific company to, to arrive at something which is more applicable to them. So it's almost like you take a standard kind of base version and then you, you tailor it to, to what's specific to, to the deal. I mean, the, the, the most basic thing, which often changes with, with obviously every single deal is things around the economics, things around what is the valuation of the company, how much money are they raising? Is there an option pool? All those kind of things, which are 
you know, they're, they're things which are often agreed over email or, or kind of verbally with your investors as a founder, and then are just encapsulated in, in this term sheet document so that everyone is aware of what, what the deal is. And then the other terms, which, which you can see in there, you know, as Carlos mentioned, some of them might be specific because the company might be looking to qualify the funding for um, EIS or SEIS, which is you know, a tax benefit for certain investors who are investing. And so, so it might have a clause around that in because that's specific to that company rather than just having it in for the sake of having it in. Then you might see things around governance and things around what is the board going to look like if there's going to be a board or there's not going to be a board. And then there's a number of other kind of like clauses which fall in turn, in kind of like in turn, depending on if you're going to have a preference share or you're going to have ordinary shares. And if there's preference share, generally that means that some investors are going to have some, the investors who are investing are going to have slightly enhanced rights is because they're receiving this, this preference share, such as you know, liquidation preferences, maybe anti-dilution, kind of these more investor protection rights, which are generally speaking more applicable when there's an institutional fund coming in rather than angels. But now with the emergence of a much more sophisticated angel funding market, they might even come in at that stage as well. So you can see that the way we fought through or Seed Summit fought through, because as Carlos mentioned, we're just you know one of the entities which kind of spearheads that initiative rather than saying this is this is Seed Camp's initiative entirely, is rather than saying this is the term sheet, this is a standard term sheet with all of the terms and all of the kind of like market factors built into it and saying it's kind of a PDF locked in, add your name, add your valuation done, where we've gone down the approach of this is pretty much the universe of options and things which are out there at this stage of, with the stage of financing which these are intended for, which is pretty much pre-series A. It's important to as a founder to understand what all these terms are and to be able to kind of like almost select some of them in obviously negotiation with with your investor to see which ones are most most appropriate for, for the company um because so, you know based upon that based upon that tom i would i would argue that now that people are listening to this they might be like okay so i shouldn't just rely on you know the yc safe or any one of these to represent standard terms meaning like you really should take some time to look at alternatives. Even if you don't go with alternatives, even if you never use the seat summit doc and you go with a YC safe or with a convertible, just reading through, I think there's value in reading through standard docs to then come up with your own conclusions as to like, actually, is this normal? Is this not normal? Is is this something yep. I need? Is this something I don't need? Um, because otherwise you won't really have a foundation by which to like really take a view. I also, I mean, I don't know what you think about, but um there's an emergence of platforms out there um, which are kind of recommending just here's this thing, go with it. What, what do you think about the, 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 the pros and cons of standard docs as part of a platform? Versus, yeah, no, so yeah. No, I, I think it's, it's a really, really interesting question. So obviously, you know, both Carlson and I as, as tech investors and as people who are, you know, early adopters of, of software and, and, you know, fascinated by the kind of move to more automation of business processes. Like you look at a lot of the legal um, industry and the way things are done. And it, I mean, this kind of like COVID times has actually improved at least things like electronic signatures for pretty much all agreements. Previously, you know, there was still a lot of printing. And you think a platform which allows that stuff to, 
to be kind of like um, brought together in, entirely digitally makes so much sense. And, and it should be, this, this whole process should, should happen a lot quicker. Um, so I guess that's definitely a given. And that applies to, you know, legal document platforms of seed legals. And, and, and I know we've, um, we've, we've spoken about them before. Um, and then also kind of things like cap table management tools, like the carters of this world and all that kind of stuff. So I think broadly speaking, these are fantastic platforms and they're definitely here to stay. I think the challenge goes when, as a founder, almost if you engage in a platform like that and you turn, you think, okay, it's all sorted then. It's, you know, my cap table's on Carter, so I don't really need to understand how it's all kind of like working as much as if I built my Excel model myself or my um, term sheet is coming through Seed Legals. They do a fantastic job of populating all the information, allowing you to kind of select and, and, and pick different things. So I don't really need to understand the, the, the underlying terms and, and why they're specifically important to my company. And I think that's where it, it, it's always, there's always a bit of a hybrid here. I think, you know, by all means use the online tools, but definitely make sure that you kind of understand why these terms are the way they are in, in the documents which you're producing and the documents which mm -hmm. you're negotiating with investors. And it's the same for investors as well. I think it's not, this isn't just a founder-led thing. Obviously, generally the process is an investor will give you a term sheet as a founder and say, these are my, these are the terms which we think uh, we, we, we want to do this deal on. Um, I, I'd say the same thing to founders. I say like, if a founder sees something and says, you know, what is that? Why is that there? There's all these fantastic resources to, to go and understand more about the terms, but yeah. definitely ask the investor to explain to you yeah. why that clause is important for them. And they shouldn't just say, oh, this is always in there. They should have a reason why, you know, this yeah. preference is in there or this entity. And it doesn't always have to be like contentious, right? It can sometimes no, it's be not very contentious, helpful. No. It gives, it gives exactly. you a good marker. But I, th I think the thing that the, the point I think that Tom and I are making on this one is this is only going to happen like four or five times in your company's life, right? You're going to maybe take funding four or five times, series A, B, C, D, E, F, whatever. There's a limited number of times this is going to happen. But the impact that this will have is so massive that honestly, just take a little bit of extra time look at some of the alternatives that are out there and, and familiarize yourself with the alternatives, not in terms of alternative sources of, of funding or sources of, of legal documents, but just the terms themselves, like which ones I could do. I'll, I'll give you an example, Tom. I don't think I've ever shared this anecdote with you. Um, when I was in Greece at, at, at um, listening to a TED talk uh, as part of a TEDx event one time, um, there was a doctor who was giving a talk and, and the doctor was talking about uh, how the medical profession is changing and he and I'm quoting him more than, you know, because uh, it, it can be partially divisive what, I'm, what he said. Um, you know, he said that, you know, the current crop of doctors are becoming medical technicians, not medical doctors. And the reason why he said that was because they're relying heavily on technology to give outcomes rather than like looking at the patient as a holistic. Like he, he was part of a general, obviously an older doctor, but he said he's part of a generation where he, you know, he goes and touches the patient and like, like just by being in the presence of the patient can smell that, for example, um, certain things are going on, whether it be like the skin change or the color of, of something, uh, you know, body fluids or whatever can give you a sense for what, where the, like the, just the data alone isn't enough. And I think the moral of that story is just because a platform says, here's normal, here's standard. It doesn't necessarily mean that that's actually the best thing for you. You need to sort of think about it more comprehensively. And then, you know, you'll have a better outcome. So, you know, we talked about in previous episodes, talk about commercial terms. And we talked a little bit about um, 
the the sort of legal terms and the legal structures. So I just want to part for now anything having to do with sort of the investment side of things. So let's now move on to standard docs, but these are a little bit different in the sense that they are more to do with things having to do with your company's day-to-day operations, right? So let's cover the first one, which is advisor agreements. I think one of the key things that um, every company benefits from having at some point is an external advisor, whether that be a non-exec, whether it just be somebody who's on an advisory board. Um, The question is, how do you bring them on? Like, how do you, how do you sign them up? Right? Like you can have an informal agreement. That's cool. But sometimes they help in many different ways. Uh, Sometimes they have time commitments. So I think it's useful to, to think through how to engage with them. Tom, what, what, what would you, what would you give as general advice on sort of standard terms to think about as part of engaging with an advisor? Yeah, no, I think it's, um, you know, I agree. I think, you know, these, these people can be hugely impactful for companies when, when they're brought on at, at the right times. There's always a, a few other things to kind of like consider about. I know angel investors sometimes are giving you a lot of advice and they're actually investing in the company. So I think you really need to find why these advisors are receiving sometimes some kind of equity incentive, which, which will come on to um, and doing something very, very specific for your company outside of the kind of advice and the help that you're already getting. So it's always a very, a very important and careful thing to consider before you bring them on. So I think, yeah, some of the things, so I guess I've touched upon one there is like compensation and how you're going to structure that kind of compensation for an advisor. Um, And obviously one of the, as as an early stage company, and that's always the, because the lens through which we we look at um, at things at Seacamp, you know, generally there's not a huge amount of cash knocking around. So you can't go around and, you know, pay, hundreds and thousands of pounds for an advisor to, to spend a little bit of time um, with a company like say, you know, a big listed entity would be able to do. So one of the ways which you are usually looking to structure these things and get this advice from these very, very exceptional people is usually by some kind of equity arrangement. And that's where understanding what that looks like and kind of like agreeing that is, is probably one of the most important things to, to figure out when you, when you potentially bring in on an advisor. So generally that would be structured as some kind of an option. Um, where they would have, you know, the, maybe the right to, to receive a, a very, very small, um, usually, think, you know, broadly talking about, you know, from 0.1, maybe to 0.25% of, of, a, of a company um, in terms of some kind of a option grant. Um, and often that would also be on some kind of a vesting schedule. So very similar to maybe the, the vesting schedule you have for in, in employees who are receiving options. And um, the other thing, I guess, to, to consider when you're thinking more specifically about advisors is, you know, having 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 a really clear like link to what exactly it is you're getting, you know, in terms of like what is the service which they're providing. So if it's some kind of an advisor, which is, you know, there's other ways to structure that a kind of exchange of like value for, for equity. If it's an advisor who's going to be, say, assisting you on sales or assisting you on something which is objective kind of like easy to classify then you could always try and you know structure your options contingent upon them unlocking this number of sales or or doing something which is very specific when it's more of a general say like you bring on an advisor to i don't know assist you as a ceo on um you know developing as a, as a better leader in the company that's much trickier to kind of like apply kind of milestones objectively to so it might not be possible to go down that route but these are some of the things which 
you know, I think it's it's important to be to be thinking through when you're when you're starting to kind of like explore those options. And obviously, it's quite a collaborative process usually with with the advisors and and um, and the founders who are, who are bringing them on. And then in terms of like documenting that and, and putting that into into um, into writing, I think and on Seed Summit, which we've mentioned before, there is an advisor agreement which contains a number of those clauses because there's some other important things around things like making sure that any work which is done with with under this kind of like guise of, of being an advisor for the company, any of that kind of IP or anything which is created does still go into the company, much similar to any employment agreement would mm. would spec would um would specify. And and that kind of stuff will just make sure it's kind of the, the hygiene factors are done. So it's almost like if I was thinking through, I'd be thinking through, right, what's the broad economics which makes this worthwhile for, for both parties? You know, what is it that gives enough incentive to this this advisor? And this is where I start to balance also the other kind of bench of people who are helping the company, such as angel investors and stuff like that, making sure not to piss them off by just giving options to someone for, for free, effectively. Then showing that there's a clear exchange of value. What what is it they're exactly going to do? If that can be objectively classified, even better. But if not, that's that's okay. Um, and then you know, getting through kind of like a, a short agreement to to make sure that the hygiene of anything which is created kind of rests in the company. Yeah, and, and I mean, look, you covered pretty much all the key points, right? Like those are all the key points to consider as part of a an engagement with an advisor. I think the one that I want to double down on that you mentioned is really around the vesting, and the reason why is even if you get none of this other shit right, as long as you have a way of separating out, because like the thing is that you don't, people promise you the world, right? And they're like, okay, within three months, you'll know that advisor is committing to the time, is is bringing in the sales, is bringing in the introductions. You'll know it within three months. And then another thing to keep in mind is advisors have an expiration date. I mean, like, yes, there's this idea that an advisor can be with you for three years, but the reality is a lot of times after about a year and a half, their their contributions start declining. And it's different because they're not in the role of an investor who's giving you advice, but also that investor is representing from a governance point of view, their shareholders. So that's a little different. An advisor is somebody who's explicitly, you've given equity explicitly to help you. So, you know, it's, it's interesting to, to sort of think about what that duration of the help can be, especially if it's like a, uh, as you mentioned, milestone driven, like a contract unlocked, because once those contracts are unlocked, there might be no more to have. And, and so you just need to negotiate when they transition out, it is you're not firing them, but that's just part of the original agreement. So anyway, that's that's one type of agreement. The next one is founder agreements, especially when companies are starting out. So I, you know, it's funny the the history of the founder collaboration agreement, which now has been, I think a lot of people have have taken inspiration from it, and there's different variants around the interwebs, but it came from hackathons. You know, I was going to these hackathons, and people would build companies, and then inevitably some founder would get kicked out because you know, the usual stuff. And then all of a sudden somebody's like, well, wait a second, who owns the intellectual property? Even if there's no company, you still have to have some sort of agreement. And so, you know, maybe you can walk us through Tom, some of the key things to factor in, in a, yeah, in, yeah. and when, when it is good to sort of have a prenup, so to speak. Yeah, no, I think, I think you've kind of hit the nail on the head in terms of the, the where, where and the why of, why these exist from kind of like hacker funds. I think it's basically the, the idea behind the kind of founders collaboration agreement is this idea that it's it's codifying that kind of conversation you might have in the in the cafe, in the coffee shop, in the pub or whatever, saying, you know, we're going to start this idea. You're going to be a founder. I'm going to be a founder. Everyone's going to have a piece of it. Um, and trying to kind of like put something in place, which makes it clear that if 
you know, it, two months down the line when everyone's like, oh, that was fun, but you know, I've, I've got a, I've got a job, I've got a mortgage, I've got things, which means that I can't commit to this startup. It's clear that because you've put this document in place, which has a very, very simple, uh, almost like agreement to have vesting rather than having kind of like, you know, vesting enshrined in, in the articles and all of the kind of stuff, which, which your lawyers would get into. There's a piece of paper which says, cool, you know, obviously life gets in the way of, of, of lots of things and, and changes and, and people's, um, people's ability to be able to commit to stuff changes um, very, very frequently. But this says that if you leave, you, you don't have any kind of rights to, to the company because the thing which this is trying to protect against is that idea that, and, you know, Carlos and I have had this conversation with founders, unfortunately, a, a few times in the past, that to say there's four people who'd started a company and by starting a company, I mean, like had an idea for a company. And then after a couple of weeks, this kind of situation unfolds, which I described where two people or say one person decides it's not for them, but the other three are right. We're totally in, we're committed, we're, we're going for this. They haven't signed a founders collaboration agreement. Um, then the company goes a couple of months later or whatever, six months later, raises a you know fantastic um, seed round. It's in TechCrunch. Everyone's really like pumped for this. This other person, the person who left like six months ago, turns around and, and there's, there's an email which might go to the investors in that round or it might go to the, the founders themselves saying, hold on a second, I was part of this kind of journey at the very, very beginning. I, you know, we said we were going to split this equally. Where, where's, where's my kind of like, uh, what's, what's going on here? This is, this, is, this is something which I should be entitled to. And often that doesn't have legal like kind of standing or it's, it's a bit of a, a gray area how that's going to be um, actually resolved. But having even it hanging over the company is just, in, it's just a headache, which you as founders don't want. So by putting in place early on something like this founders collaboration agreement, pretty much as soon as you've got an idea which you think could turn into a business, that's the kind of window with which I think these, these agreements make sense. Literally, it's a, you know, it's a few pages. It's nothing like heavy. You can kind of like read it amongst each other as founders. That's why it was what it was designed for rather than necessarily having lawyers involved. It just avoids that situation where someone comes out of the woodwork six, nine months down the line who isn't really involved and just makes a bit of a headache for everyone else. So it's a, it's a, it's a really, I think, important thing to be thinking about when you're at that kind of ideation stage, turning something into a real business before yeah. everything's got more serious. The, the, the thing I'd add to that, Tom, is that I think that because it's not, as you said, it's not a legal document in this way that a shareholders agreement is a legal document. It's like a, it's a commercial agreement, which, you know, you, it does have some value in court, but it isn't the same as like other, other uh, more traditional uh, shareholder agreements. But here's the key thing, because it is a flexible thing, have fun with it, guys. Like if you, it's never too late to have an agreement between, you know, like, when, how will we hold each other accountable? If our roles have to change, wh- how will we manage that? You know, what, what kind of expectations do we have for each other? If one of us has to leave, how do, we, how do we manage that internally before we engage with external shareholders? So the Founders Collaboration Agreement is one of those where there is no such thing as a standard. And that's why I find it funny if people like, there's this one standard. Uh, no, it isn't. It is explicitly a document for founders to agree about how to not only deal with what a separation would look like, but also what quality should look like within their own relationships. Yeah, I think it's a, I think it's a great point. I think it's basically like, you know, it's a good forcing function that 
shit's getting real. Like, let's figure out what this is going to look like. And also, it might be a good way to kind of, you know, prompt some discussions with people where some people might go, you know what, like, I really like this, but you guys are much more committed. You guys should run this. I'm going to be supportive, but, you know, I totally understand that it's, it's not one for me or like all these kind of conversations, it's better to have them early in the process than, than too late. Hmm. All right. So I'm going to move on to the last set of documents that we're going to talk about today. And, you know, there's, there's tons more, right? But these are the sort of the key ones, advisors, founder collaboration agreements, investment term sheets, and the last one is employee related matters, right? Now, we're going to cover this one, this topic in more detail in a future episode. So this is just like a taster. But basically, maybe, Tom, you can just walk us through the difficult, the different types of employee stock option agreements and um, what makes them different. And then we can a little bit, little bit kind of debate sort of some of the benefits of them and some of the challenges with them. And then we'll just reserve some of the details of it for another, another podcast. Yeah. Cool. No, I mean, there's always, there's always more to talk about, Carlos. There's always more to talk about. Time just, just flies in these things. Um, so, no, I think like kind of in terms of the, the employee kind of options space, I think most of my experience, I think probably our experience is, is more kind of UK um, linked. But generally speaking, you know, what, what you're looking to do when a company is, is setting up an option pool, and often that's around the time of a financing, that there is something put in place here that you know you're carving out part of the kind of cap table part of the equity in the business to be able to you know make grants to, to employees to bring them on and i think is a big kind of macro point i think we all, we we definitely think that options are a fantastic way to incentivize early early employees and actually something that in, in the uk or in europe generally we're pretty much just catching up with the way the us thinks about equity because they've got more experience of seeing how valuable these can be and how important an incentive in, in building a company. But putting aside the kind of economics of the things, it's more when you're looking to kind of document them. Generally, when you have this kind of carved out, there will be some form of like employee share option plan, which is a, a ESOP or, or is it often called, which basically would be a, a document which sets out the rules of what these options are going to do and when they're going to be able to be, and as Carl said, we could probably do a whole episode on, on this because this kind of stuff because there's windows with which people can kind of like exercise their options and all sorts of good stuff and um, which would be contained with, within this this document which you put together with with lawyers and then make available to the employees to be able to read when when they when they granted these options but i think some of the other key thing to think about um is in the uk often people want to kind of qualify their esop as under the Enterprise Management Incentive Scheme, I think it's called, the or EMI, as it's often shortened to. And this basically means that it will allow employees to receive, if, when they receive these options, to receive them in a much more tax favorable way. So rather than them getting, receive them and having to pay income tax on them, they actually just pay capital gains on, on the difference in value from when they received it to, to when they, they grant it and exercise it, which is, hugely impactful when you when you talk about the kind of difference in those those rates like whatever it is 28% to 40 even maybe 50% for very high earners and so qualifying that and thinking through that as a, as a founder is, is 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 very very important and i think some of the things which w when you are going down that route of uh, employee share option plan and then an emi plan and obviously you'd be working with advisors one of the key steps is getting a evaluation for for the company so the interesting thing here is 
it's, it's a very different valuation to the valuations which we've talked about in this podcast before, which are led by investors and, you know, are set by kind of like the market demand for the company. In this case, as a founder, you're, you're actually going to go to HMRC and, and put forward with your accountant documents which show that the valuation of the company should be generally very low. And that's something that the reason why you want to low valuation and the reason why HMRC is also usually accepted low, low valuation um, and the reason you want that is because that it basically increases the value of the options to, to the employee who, who you're receiving them for. Because if you get something which is priced lower than the actual potential market value of the company, then obviously you as an employee are, are benefiting from that. And generally speaking, prior to, to very recently, and I must admit, I, I'd, I'd need to, we'd need to speak to probably more, more accountants to understand exactly what the market is right now. But HMRC has been very amenable to, to companies obtaining very, very low um, kind of like valuations or what you set the kind of strike price at. More recently, we've seen some uh, kind of anecdotal um, stories that that hasn't been coming back as low as people would want because usually there is a, a push, as we said, to, to get that kind of price set low, which is because it's better for employees and allows the company to make more attractive option grants. But it's something that, Usually, your your you know your accountant or your advisors would, would help structure. So and and don't worry if this is something that you want to explore more. We will be covering this in more detail the next episode. Yeah, but maybe, maybe so Tom. I, sorry, sorry. Go ahead. Yeah, so I think that that's probably the you kind of you know the UK structure kind of ESOP to EMI, and then you you have all that set up, and then I think that you know there's obviously differences per jurisdiction. I think that's an important thing to flag. Like you know we're probably able to at least provide a bit more kind of like detail and structure around UK because we're a bit more familiar with, with, with that market. But of course, you know, in the US, there are kind of re restricted share options and grants. There are kind of, I think Carlos, you, you had a deal recently where they were, they were looking at putting in something in a more like kind of phantom stock option um, agreements. And so they're effectively- And SARS. And SARS, exactly. I like, there's just, there's so many acronyms and so many great, yeah. great names out there. But I mean, but I think you know how like, you know, like one way of organizing it is, remember how we were talking about deal structures, there is equity, and then there's something that will convert into equity, whether it's convertibles, whether it's safes, whether it's convertible notes, uh, equity, whatever, like they're all two types, right? I, I would argue that I'm seeing a pattern here, which is, there is uh, schemes where there is an actual granting of an option to an employee. And then there's a whole bunch of other schemes which try to map the economic value, but don't actually give options to own the underlying shares to the employees. Now you might end up having two equivalent economic outcomes for employees. So like take two companies, two different structures, two different exits. You could have employees with the same economic outcome, but with totally different incentivization structures. And, I, and I, what I'm seeing is that the reason why these two types exist, like the phantom shares versus like EMI schemes, is because of how to mitigate complexity in an organization. Like for example, not everybody's in the UK. You have employees all over the world, or you have contractors. How do you, how do you incentivize them as part of a, a scheme that is like an employee scheme, but when they're not an employee? Or for example, uh, in, increasingly, you have community uh, or, or sort of uh, group incentivization schemes, like think about like a co-op. How do you create that? So that that's just sort of lay the foundation for the episode when we talk about this a little bit more, 
is that there's a, a, a whole world of how to build incentivization schemes for your employees. And there is no standard way. Like there is one standard way for like maybe a very clean, super easy EMI scheme. But it, I encourage you to think through the growth of your company, the different jurisdictions that your employees will be in. And maybe there's an equivalent economic outcome for your employees. It just doesn't come the way that it's happened for other people. And I'd, I'd just add to that. I'd say that the, um, you know, one thing which I think is really important for, for founders is to try and very clearly and succinctly have a way to communicate the value and the structure and how it works with regards to options that they're granting to to employees. So there's been some great examples of this, and um, I'm sure we, we I think we've shared some previously on on CCAM's Twitter and on our kind of like blog posts and um, internally on our site and things. But companies where they they're doing a really really good job of when they onboard employees, they say, okay, this is an option. This is what we're giving you. This is how it works. This is what it's worth now. This is what it could be worth in the future. And seeing these scenarios, because if I and I see founders who I work with now doing that really really well, because it if you don't do that, you miss an opportunity to have something which is going to potentially sell your company even better. And then you hopefully secure those really, really important hires, which is so important to the, to the company. Mm. Well, guys, uh, with that, that brings this podcast to an end. Uh, we covered this idea of standard docs. They're not standard. They're just average. So make sure that you're well-informed about what you're signing up to. Um, it's not just about investment. It's also about how you relate to other people, external or internal, whether you incentivize them, how you incentivize them, when you, when you separate from them. So check out Seed Summit, check out uh, YC Safe, check out all the ones out there. We're going to try to list as many as we can on the show notes. Uh, but hopefully this was helpful in, in getting you inspired to go out and not just take whatever is handed to you. So until next time, guys, from Tom and I, see you later. Brilliant. Thanks, everyone. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the podcast, don't forget to subscribe on iTunes and SoundCloud and leave us a read with your thoughts on our show.